Welcome to Preheated, kitchen wisdom and friendly chat from two friends who love to bake. I'm Andrea Ballard in London. And I'm Stefan Cohn, also in London. Every week, we celebrate the successes, failures, learning, and laughs that go hand in hand with baking for those we love. Today, we're reviewing our milk chocolate pots and seeing if this delightful little dish can convert even the most die-hard dark chocolate fans. Then, we'll introduce a fascinating babka recipe, so complex it's going to require two of us to make it. Finally, we'll sort through some natural and alternative sweeteners that are crowding our grocery store shelves and find out what works and what doesn't. So grab yourself some coffee and get ready for some sweet talk. I'm so excited that you're here back recording with me in London. I know. It's so much fun to be together again. We haven't recorded together since episode 90, which was our Stone Fruits episode in September. So it's been, I mean, I have not seen you in, whatever, eight months. Yeah. No, it's been a good chunk of time. And as always, though, it took us about five minutes to get back to our level of conversation. <laughs> and no matter how much time goes by, we always just jump right back on track. Yeah, I love that. We've had a lot of fun so far this week, and we're going to talk about more in a minute with the Bobcat. But why don't you let the folks know what we've been up to? All right. Well, first of all, something very different for me. Normally on Fat Tuesday, I would be celebrating Mardi Gras. But here yeah. in London, we celebrated National Pancake Day. <laughs> it was very exciting. I guess first I should point out that a pancake in London is not what I would consider a pancake in the United States. Yeah, so we went, there are these pancake races all over the city, and we went to a historic market called Leadenhall Market, and folks might be familiar because it was the setting for Diagon Alley in the Harry Potter movies, and we went there and there were teams of folks flipping the pancakes in their skillets as they ran this relay race and they were much more like a crepe or a crepe because they were also handing them out and you could put on some cinnamon sugar some lemon juice and then they were folded up into quarters like a crepe would be mm -hmm. yeah that was pretty exciting so we did get to see the pancake races and we had some pancakes so that was really fun and then the next day, we went to a puff pastry class. And this was at the Bread Ahead Bakery School at our beloved Borough Market. For me, Stefan, this was my first time really making puff pastry. And we made the laminated dough back in our breakfast bakes month when we did our quantamine. And then I recently made a rough puff. But this was intense. So we all went home with two pounds, the equivalent of two pounds of the puff pastry ready to go that included six turns or six folding ends of the huge butter block that we started with. It was really fascinating as far as the rolling techniques, as far as the resting techniques, as far as flouring your board. Our instructor was French and he had a lot of great funny kitchen tips and things. I'll never flour my board the same way. He would say, but, you know, put a little bit of flour. You want a little bit of flour. I love you. That's too much. I hate you. 
<laughs> yes, he said it was very French. Yes. I want the flower. I don't want the flower. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we had – our instructor was great, and also our fellow classmates were really fun. We met some really nice people. They might even be listening now. So hello, new preheated listeners, if you're there. The thing that was really fun for me is that this particular recipe was another one of those proportion recipes. So it was all based on, you know, 250 milliliters of flour – and then 250 milliliters of butter. Uh, milliliters, no. Yeah, yeah that's Darn grams. It. Grams. It's grams, because it's a dry ingredient. Ugh, yes. well, anyway, 250, 250, <laughs> 250, 250. It made it really easy, even though it doesn't sound like it from what I'm talking about. But I love those kind of recipes, so that was really fun. And with our final product, of course, we left with, as Stefan said, this enormous lump of puff pastry that we can put in our freezers. But in the class, we made cheese straws, oh. which were absolutely lovely. So good. Those were really good. And we also made a tart. Would you call it a tart? A small tart? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. He had a French name for it, but I think it translated <laughs> to small tart. Yeah. I can't remember that French name, but it had a jam layer and then a frangipan mm-hmm. layer. Almond. Mm. Yeah. It was fabulous. Yeah. We had a great time there, and I'm certainly looking forward to more classes. There was also at the same time a Scandinavian bakes class going on in the mm-hmm. adjacent classroom, and that looked really fun. They were doing a lot of things with buns and butter also, so... I'd happily switch to that classroom one of these days too. Yeah, so check out the Bread Ahead Bakery School at Borough Market next time you're in London. We definitely give it two thumbs up. We will post some pictures from our show notes of the class that we took. Well, on to our review back to Chocolate Month during Crazy for Chocolate Month. And this is our Milk Chocolate Pots with Citrus Shortbread from BBC Good Food. These were a departure from last week when we had the very dark chocolate going on with those salted rye cookies. This milk chocolate and had the nice addition of being kind of a smaller recipe using four ramekins, two shortbreads per person. Andrea, when we introed this, I said, I think this is the perfect Andrea recipe. It's very straightforward, just a few ingredients. It has the citrus, it has the chocolate. So why don't you let us know how it worked out for you? Yeah, this was a great recipe for me. So I did, um, first step is to heat the cream and then pour it over the chocolate to melt the chocolate. And then you stir that until smooth and you beat in your egg yolks. Obviously, I did not tip it into a jug. I already talked last week about (laughs) how I felt that step was unnecessary. Um, My container was a large Pyrex container with a spout. So that, that substituted as my jug. And then instead of four individual pots, my ramekins are a little bit bigger. I think my ramekins are almost eight ounces, so I did three. It does say put it in the fridge to set for at least two hours. I'm going to go ahead now and say that I definitely needed more than two hours. Uh, It was still quite runny at two hours. Okay. And then the shortbread piece is where I ran into a little bit of problems. Uh, You mix flour, orange zest, and butter in a large bowl and rub it together until it resembles fine breadcrumbs. And then you add the sugar and the egg yolk and then mix it gently. And it says bring it together with your hands and roll it out. Now, for me at this point, it was sand. It was 100% Mm. sand. There was absolutely no way I could have rolled it out. 
So I went back and looked at my prior shortbread successes, which you'll remember our Earl Grey shortbread was a big success for me. And the two biggest differences in our old shortbreads that we'd made very successfully in this recipe, one was that in the old shortbread recipes, they used confectioner sugar or icing sugar instead of caster sugar. Well, it was too late for me to change that because the sugar was already in the recipe. I couldn't do anything about it. Right. But the second thing that was different was they used a food processor instead of a bowl. And so I took the mixture and put it in my food processor. And just in about 30 seconds of going in the food processor, it turned into an ice dough. Oh, nice. So yep. it was just maybe quicker than you could do with your hands or I, some kind of action there. I think somehow the action of incorporating the butter into a flour in a way that I couldn't do with my hands mm-hmm. made it so that it was really able to get worked into the dough. And who knows, maybe if I had continued with my hands, but my hands were already tired. So <laughs> I I don't think I could well, have kept going. They did need a break. Now, as I'm looking at the instructions, I'm realizing I did something wrong. Uh, shocker. You were supposed to roll the shortbread out on a lightly floured surface uh-huh. um, and then put it on your baking tray and then rest it in the fridge. I'm realizing that I just chilled my dough straight out of the food processor, almost like a pie dough. Before you rolled it. I did. I think because I was so nervous about how sandy it had been okay. and all I had done was whizzed it in the food processor. Do you see I'm in London and I'm whiz. Whiz. You just whiz things over here. That's what you do. And so I did, I wrapped it in some saran wrap, put it in the fridge. It almost looked like a pie crust, in fact. And I did it more than 10 minutes. I probably did it a good hour. Pulled it out, rolled it out. It rolled out quite nicely. So I'm realizing that in this one, you you roll it into a rectangle and then cut it after it's cooked, mm-hmm. I cut mine ahead of time. Okay. Did you score it or you cut it all the way through? I cut it all the way through. Okay. I don't know why I made that up in my head, but I did. <laughs> I think just because in the past, that's how we had done shortbread. And did you have the nice rectangular shapes? I made rectangular shapes. I decided in step three, I'm convinced there's a word missing because it says, while still warm, cut into eight by two centimeter biscuits. And I thought earlier that meant eight as in a quantity of eight. But now I'm thinking that means a size. So eight centimeters by two centimeters? Right. Because I ended up with 25 cookies. Oh. And mine were a rectangular shape and they were, I would say, one by three inches. (laughs) Well, here's where I deviated because I put mine, I patted mine into a round and I did chill it at that time. But I just scored it and made more like petticoat tails, which are the triangular shortbreads. And I did get eight. Oh, okay. But I didn't follow their their geometric configuration, so I don't know what, what I would have done. I don't know how many I would have had had I cut them into the squares. Yeah, and I actually had to do quite a lot of math here because in step two, you're supposed to be rolling the shortbread out until it's one centimeter thick. Yeah. So I did the math to convert one centimeter to inches, and then I have those rolling bands that you put on your rolling pin yeah. that tell you how thick you're rolling to. And so I was able to roll it to the equivalent of one centimeter. And okay. like I said, I ended up with like 25 cookies. I would say the cookies were the size of the Biscoff cookie that you buy in the grocery store. Well, I mean, it's really interesting. One thing we'd said when we introed this is there's no real serving size. So we'd said, yeah. oh, it's going to be one chocolate pot and two cookies per person. So that's what I was going for. And that's why I made eight. I thought they cooked up well, and they weren't too thick. Mm -hmm. They baked off in that time. So I think eight cookies does work. But maybe yours were, I mean, how could they be that much thinner? (laughs) To get 20, from eight to 25 is kind of a shocking tripling. I know. You know, we'll have to compare pictures. 
because yes. because yes. when you look at my pictures and see my shortbread size and I look at yours, I think all will become clear. <laughs> Is what I'm hoping. Because it's not as if simply putting it in the food processor tripled the volume. No. It's not like you suddenly had more dough than no, I did. No. Exactly. Okay. So we'll figure that out. Don't worry, listeners. Okay. <laughs> well, visual coming. Yeah, visual coming. Then after the shortbread was cooked, I whipped the remaining heavy cream to soft peaks and I spooned it on top of my chocolate pots. I did end up chilling my chocolate pots for five hours. That was the point where I felt like it was a texture that was good enough to spoon up and eat. I fed this to my family. Everyone really liked the flavor. They thought it was fabulous. Both my husband and my daughter commented on the texture of the chocolate pots being too runny. And that was even after a five-hour chill. I had this problem not at all. Really? This is so interesting. Well, we obviously use different kinds of chocolate. Yep. I mean, I did use milk chocolate, and I used 200 grams, and I used the double cream. That was a heavy whipping yep. cream. Mm-hmm. And I used two large egg yolks. So yours chilled up. Yours was very spoonable and not runny. And here is my issue. These were so thick and so rich, even with the milk chocolate, which mine was a 37% uh, organic green and blacks. So very sweet, right? Very mm-hmm. sweet there. It was so thick that my comments are, my ramekins held 100 mils each. I had four of them. I would have cut that in half, so each person had 50. Because it was so dense, it was just like eating a ganache. Oh. And I thought it was too much. That's so funny. We had the exact opposite experience. Totally. This is bizarro world. So listeners... (laughs) We really now want to know what happened for all of you because we obviously had two entirely different experiences. And since we did attempt at least to follow the recipe, it's got to come down to ingredients on the chocolate pots. Yeah, it must. Mm -hmm. And I had the crumbly issue with my shortbread, although I just note it was very crumbly. Mm -hmm. I didn't have to add any extra liquid. I did uh, bring it together and then pat it out. My family loved the chocolate pots. You know, last week we talked about the dark chocolate rye cookies. My kids couldn't get excited. They were too intense. Yeah. This was right up their alley as mm-hmm. far as that sweetness and that chocolate. But I was the only one who really got behind the citrus shortbread. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, we all liked the chocolate and the shortbread. And I put the shortbread in a Ziploc bag when I was done with it with all the leftovers. And I put it by the door. And it was right next to where I keep my dog biscuits. And... <laughs> The next day, my husband said something about like, wow, these are the prettiest dog biscuits oh, I've ever seen. And I fancy. said, I said, no, no, those are the shortbread. So I've now learned um, to keep things separate in my house. Yeah. Mm-hmm, good good mm-hmm. policy. No, but for sure, thumbs up on this recipe. Although maybe I'd try a different type of milk chocolate next time. I use that Dilettante brand, which is a Seattle chocolate maker. Yeah. And maybe there was something about that particular type of chocolate. It was in the button form. So maybe it was meant to be more of a melting. You know what I'm talking about when I talk about like a, a wafer or a melting chocolate, like a dipping yeah. chocolate. So maybe it was meant to be runnier. I'm wondering, sometimes those have an additive. Was it pure chocolate or did it have some kind of melting, you know, some something in yeah. there to help it melt? I'll have to look when I get home. That's a good question. Although you'd think that might make it thicker, not thinner. I know. This is some fascinating science because we had exactly <laughs> the opposite reactions. Yeah. I liked this. My family liked this. I thought they were really elegant. It was just that kind of dessert where you're getting a little bit of the sweet, you know, one cookie, two cookies, and the chocolate pot. So they came together really nicely for me. Flavors were great. Yeah, I I thumbs up them too. Yeah. I I thumbs up them. You thumbs up them. (laughs) (laughs) I second your thumbs up. Mm. 
Well, coming up next, we have our chocolate and salted pistachio babka buns. <laughs> wow, that was hard to say. From Ed Kimber. This is, um, Ed Kimber is also known as the boy who bakes. I absolutely love his recipes. His Instagram feed is so much fun. You can find him, the boy who bakes. I picked this particular recipe because I have never made babka, but mm-hmm. I've been fascinated by it ever since an episode, I'm sure in the 90s, of Seinfeld, where they were searching out this chocolate babka and, Classic. You know, yeah, yeah. So how about you? Have, do you have any babka experience? No babka. No okay. babka experience. <laughs> well, and I love chocolate. I love pistachios. So I am pretty excited about this particular recipe. It might even be the type of recipe that requires a little help from each other. What do you think? Yeah, we're going to attempt to bake along together. Now, listeners, you'll remember that although we talk about baking every week and both do it extensively, we have only been in a kitchen baking together one other time, and that is last summer right before our Pies and Prosecco's Mm -hmm. class. So we thought it would be a great opportunity to get back in the kitchen together, bake this up, and also... I think it was a challenge from one of our listeners, and it's one of our 19 for 19, to record some audio while we're baking. Yes. So we're going to use my remote microphone and try to capture some of that. I know. I'm so excited. It might just capture lots of laughter. I am going to be watching Stefan Like a Hawk because (laughs) I am so interested with watching someone who actually follows the recipe, and I think it'll be fascinating to see how that works. So I'm really, it's going to be a good learning for me. I'm excited. Yeah, I mean, when we baked together, we were each making our own pie. Right. And so here we're making one batch. Yes. So we have to agree at some point on certain techniques and and things. So (laughs) Listeners, hopefully this won't be the last episode of Preheated (laughs) after the breakdown in the kitchen. Who knows? And we have a little sneak preview for you. So take a listen to what's coming up next week. Should I the recording since we're just going to be kneading for 15 minutes. It's not fascinating to you? The longest episode ever. (laughs) You know, one ingredient thing here that we noticed right away, Mm. it doesn't specify the type of yeast. It just says dried yeast at 7 grams. Because of the fact that you are adding this along with the other dry ingredients and the fact that it has a very short rise time of only Mm -hmm. about an hour, hour and a half, make sure you're using a rapid rise yeast. Yes. Yes. Very important. Remember, we will have a link to these recipes in our show notes for this episode, which is episode 116 on our website, preheatedpodcast.com. And of course, we'll place a link in our Facebook group as well. Stefan, back in the day, my pantry only had two flours, white and whole wheat, two sugars, white granulated sugar and brown sugar, and one salt, kosher salt. Boy, have those days changed. You are not kidding. Especially since I moved from Seattle to London, I've discovered all sorts of sweet alternatives. This week, let's explore moving beyond the plain world of white sugar into the natural alternatives for making things sweet. Now, I noticed you said natural, and I want to make sure we specify what we mean by that. Good idea. Natural has become a nutritional buzzword, but does it really mean anything? Defining natural has been on the FDA radar for a while, and that's the Food and Drug Administration for listeners outside of the U.S. They announced they'd be looking into an official definition of natural foods in early 2018, but so far I haven't been able to find any additional guidelines that have been released. So for now, natural, according to the FDA, means that nothing artificial or synthetic has been included in or added to a food. 
So a sweetener like honey or maple syrup would be considered natural? Exactly. And before we jump into exploring some of those natural sweeteners, it's probably also good to distinguish between refined versus unrefined sugar, especially since the words unrefined and natural are often used interchangeably. So it sounds like not all sugars are created equal. Nope. Refined sugar or white granulated sugar is processed and has little to no nutritional value. It comes from processed sugarcane or sugar beets, and when the sugar is refined and processed, some ingredients may be added. For example, sulfur dioxide, which makes the sugar turn white in color. I'm guessing the unrefined sugars have a bit more of a health boost, like my beloved molasses. Yes. Unrefined or raw sugar retains more of the sugar's natural nutrients, like calcium and iron and magnesium. If you're not familiar with unrefined sugar, it's found in honey, agave nectar, brown rice syrup, maple sugar, cane juice, date sugar, fruit, and molasses. So those are the type of sweeteners we're going to focus on today. And those all sound great to me. I remember we used agave back in episode 31 when we made David Leibovitz's chocolate ice cream. It was so delicious, and you'd be hard-pressed to know it was made with an alternative sweetener if you weren't told. And didn't you use some Billington's natural molasses dark brown sugar when we made the figgy pudding in episode 105.5? I did, and I loved it. When that box ran out, which happened rather quickly over the holidays since I also used it to make my fruit cake and my ginger molasses cookies, I switched over to dark muscovado sugar. Have you ever heard of muscovado sugar or used it? Yes, I hadn't really encountered this until I came to London, but muscovado is very popular here, and both the light and the dark are regularly called for in recipes. In fact, our dark salted rye cookies used muscovado sugar. So I've been using it on the regular. And as a huge fan of molasses, I love that it has a stronger flavor than regular brown sugar. And in fact, that's the main difference between brown sugar and muscovado. Brown sugar is actually refined white sugar to which molasses has been added back, and muscovado is less refined to begin with, so it retains some of its natural molasses. I'm lucky enough to find dark muscovado sugar easily in my area too. A company from Seattle called the India Tree makes it readily available in most of my grocery stores. Of course, I do have to pay more, but it's so good for winter baking and things like gingerbread and molasses cookies. You can substitute dark muscovado sugar one-to-one anytime a recipe calls for brown sugar. It's especially good when a recipe calls for crisp edges and chewy centers. Think about brownies or bar cookies. Right. I really love using it when I want that molasses flavor to really shine through. It's a perfect match for those delicious gingerbread cookie bars we made in episode 57. You also mentioned honey as one of the natural sweeteners. I love it in tea, on my morning yogurt, and I even douse my family members with a spoonful as a natural cough suppressant. (laughs) In fact, you're such a fan. I recall you once named Stephanie Plum, the heroine of author Janet Ivanovich's stellar series, a bounty honey instead of a bounty (laughs) hunter. (laughs) We used honey back in episode 84. Remember when we made that semifredo with honeyed peaches? And both of us liked the honeyed peaches even more than the semifredo. Now that recipe specifically called for honey, but can you just substitute honey for sugar in a recipe and call it good? 
You do need to be careful doing that. According to Joanne Chang, uh, she is the author of Baking with Less Sugar, when you substitute honey, you have to adjust. Because honey is a liquid sweetener, you'll need to reduce the liquid in other parts of the recipe. Honey also darkens faster than white sugar desserts, so you'll need to keep a closer eye on the dessert while it's in the oven. And keep in mind, honey is twice as sweet as refined white sugar, so you can use less. Well, that sounds like a good plan that might require some experimentation and documentation. Yes, which may be better suited to your careful baking personality than my freewheeling ways. (laughs) Honey is a good substitute for white sugar and desserts that don't require crisp edges like muffins and quick breads. Joanne Chang's favorite natural sugar for baking is actually something I think most of us have in our pantries already, maple syrup. She likes it for its flavor, which she describes as rich, buttery, and very comforting. And I know we both have it in our pantries since we used it in episode 100 for Alexandra Stafford's Very Good Easyish Two Bagels. And that recipe called for barley malt syrup, but we both used maple syrup with good results. I'm guessing all of the cautions for substituting honey also apply to maple syrup? Yes. Again, you want to adjust the liquid and watch the browning. Now, another natural sugar that's in my pantry, although I am embarrassed to admit it still remains unopened, is coconut sugar. It's interesting that it's called coconut sugar because of the coconutty flavor, but it doesn't actually come from coconuts. Coconut sugar comes from dried and granulated sap of flower buds from the coconut palm tree. There is a difference between regular palm sugar, which comes from palm trees, and coconut sugar, so be sure to check the labels when you're buying. Andrea, do you have any plans for your coconut sugar anytime soon? Coconut sugar can be substituted one for one for white granulated sugar in recipes with a little loss of sweetness, but since it tends to be drying, it's best in recipes that have lots of fat or moisture or fruit purees. Banana muffins, quick breads, and soft-baked cookies are recommended, but I've got my eye on some candy. I've heard that toffees and caramels are seriously delicious when you substitute coconut sugar for regular sugar. Oh, But do keep in mind that you want to stick to candies that cook to the softball stage. Coconut sugar has a lower burning point than white sugar. Coconut sugar can quickly burn and taste horrible when it's cooked higher than 285 degrees Fahrenheit, 141 degrees Celsius. Yes, those apple spice caramels from King Arthur Flour that I talked about in episode 101 cook to 248 degrees Fahrenheit or 120 degrees Celsius. So I think that will be a perfect one to experiment with, especially since I already know how they taste with regular sugar. Stefan, we wouldn't be complete on our topic of natural sweeteners unless we mentioned one of your favorites, dates. Oh, so delish. But I think you may have joined me on the date bandwagon since you made the parsnip date and hazelnut loaf in episode 109. Now that recipe actually called for chopped fresh dates, but as you can imagine, it's a bit difficult to substitute whole sticky dates for sugar otherwise. One thing that has worked well for me is to make a date paste. I put one cup of dates in the blender or the food processor with three quarter cups of water and whiz it around to make a paste the consistency of applesauce. You can use date paste as a one-to-one substitute for sugar while heeding the earlier cautions about substituting a liquid for a non-liquid sweetener. I do that too and with great success. My difference is that I usually gently simmer my dates in the water for about five minutes to soften them up before I puree them. I love that date puree not only adds sweetness but also moisture, so it's perfect in muffins. In fact, I'm fine-tuning an original recipe that calls for just this ingredient. I'm currently obsessed with it. And Andrea, point of fact, 
I was inspired by a muffin recipe I came across that did the same thing with a raisin puree, which is certainly another option, especially if you've got a bag in your pantry or if you don't care for dates. One huge bonus of using alternative natural sugars is the boost of flavor you can add to your baked goods. You know how the cooking world has shifted from using cheap wines in cooking? And now chefs say, don't cook with a wine you wouldn't drink. So true. And I know I'd much rather have a spoonful of honey or a date than a spoonful of sugar, Mary Poppins notwithstanding. Listeners, we'd love to know your favorite natural sweeteners and sugar alternatives. So head on over to our Facebook group or send us a message at host at preheatedpodcast.com. Well, the timer's buzzed, and we've got to get the icing onto this episode. We release a new show every Monday morning. So join us next week for our review of Ed Kimber's Chocolate and Salted Pistachio Babka Buns and the introduction of a special, dare we say magical, chocolate ingredient. I'll also report in from one of the world's most beautiful and perhaps tastiest destinations in our popular globetrotting gourmet segment when I return from Norway. Remember, you can find us in our featured recipes on our website, preheatedpodcast.com, and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where we're at Preheated Pod. If you like our show, please tell a friend and subscribe. And also consider ranking and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you download our show. Until next time, I'm Stefan Cohn in London. And I'm Andrea Ballard, side by side in London. Thanks for listening and sweet dreams. is written, hosted, and edited by Andrea Ballard and Stefan Cohn in association with 24th Floor Productions.